Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. Which very much feels like there is no already right now, right? We live in this world that is just increasingly uh, fractured. Uh, But us as the people of God, and this is really, if I land anywhere today, and I hope to land somewhere today, but if I land anywhere today, this is what I want to encourage you with, is the people of God can be the people in a world that is hell-bent on war are the people who weep well, the people who know how to mourn. The people who say this is not right and this is not okay. The people who do not give in to ways of war and violence and othering. That is the, the, I, I think, one of the roles of the people standing, the people of God standing in the middle of our world is to hold together the tensions of the world and, and, and not in the already not yet sort of way, but to bring things together or to hold things together as people who feel deeply, but not feel deeply in a way that angers, that lashes out in violence, but in a way that feels anger and weeps. It's okay to be angry. I'm angry at the way that the world is now but it does not lead me to take up a gun or a sword or drive a tank. It leads me to weep. And I'd suggest that as the people of God, as we think about our role in the world, it is one um, that joins in the broken heart and crucified Messiah of our Lord Jesus. That was unplanned, and so let me dive in. I want to start um, with a scripture and then two stories, one short and one very, very long story. So here's the text for this morning that we're really not going to talk about, but I'm going to give us just one little piece of something to think about from it. This is from Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So you must be careful to obey everything that they tell you. But don't do what they do. I don't get that. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garment long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he's in heaven nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
So that was the text. Here's a short story, and it's the story of my first assignment in seminary. Brock Miller, where are you? Okay, well, there we go. There's this guy who usually comes here. His name is Brock Miller. Uh, we went to the same seminary together a couple years apart. I was going to ask him a question that's irrelevant now, but one of the first assignments, at least, that I had in seminary, and I entered uh, seminary at age 25 in 2003. This is after completing an undergraduate degree in Christian education, which was the worst degree I could have ever gotten, uh, but I had a minor in Bible. It was the only, anyway, that's another story. Um, but I, I felt called to ministry. I had served in ministry for a little bit of time, and the first assignment that I was given in seminary was to take out a blank sheet of paper, actual paper, and an actual pen, and I was to write out the story as I understood it, the story as I understood it. Um, I forget how much time I was given, but I, I sat there incredibly nervous because the truth was I didn't really know how the story fit together. This is as somebody who's been in Bible classes and feels called to ministry, didn't know how the story fit together. I didn't know how the Bible fit together. And so here I was entering seminary, sitting nervously with this blank sheet of paper, and I didn't even know how to write the story. I felt held the purpose of my life and vocation. And so I remember writing something, but I also remember a great deal of shame <laughs> about what I wrote. Uh, it, was, it was quite a humbling exercise, to say the least. We're not going to dive into, as I said, the gospel text very much this morning, except to say this, that... Those who Jesus was describing, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they knew the story, but they didn't know the story. They knew the scriptures and the history and the tradition, but they didn't know what it was telling them. They missed the direction to which it was pointing, and that wasn't the first time for God's people. It's actually a regular occurrence throughout the biblical narrative. They know the story, but the story is misunderstood and the story is misapplied. And so for the remainder of our time together today, I simply want to retell the story. The story of the Bible is a story that holds everything together. And there are two reasons why I want to retell this story today. One is because there might be some of you who were like me and you've been around this thing for a long time and you hear bits and snippets and those kinds of things from week to week, but you don't have kind of an overall sense of the story. And so um, maybe this will be helpful for you or maybe you're new to Christianity and we're, or maybe this is the first time you stepped inside the church. Um, and so maybe this will be a helpful thing uh, for you. But I also want to tell the story because I, I feel like understanding our story helps us to not only understand the present, but understand our role as the people of God in the present. We're people of the story. We're people who are living out the story. And we're people uh, who trust the story. Not, not that this story is perfect, I think there are some in the Christian tradition who say, this is perfect, this is a perfect story. The scriptures are perfect. They're not, there's not a perfect, there's one perfect person within this whole story. The rest is incredibly, incredibly messy. Incredibly messy. And so we find ourselves within this story, but we also find that God journeys alongside us in the story. Throughout the ups and downs 
of history. This is the story that holds things together. And it's not just the story that holds things together for the people in this time, uh, at the time that these things were written, but it's a story that holds things together for us in our time as well, if and as we trust the story. And so I want to retell this story at a very high level, not into the weeds, um, but what I hope we can do is to trust the story and to trust the God of the story and to trust God and ask God's help to, to be the people the story asks us to be. So once a time, once upon a time, in the beginning, let's start, the earth was formless and empty and the spirit of God hovered over the waters, which is another way of simply saying God hovered over the chaos of the deep. Uh, in terms of, um, just, uh, I'll just lay this out there out front in terms of how I understand this story. In the beginnings of this story, I don't take them literally. I don't take Genesis 1 through 11 literally. Uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't do anything to diminish the power of the story. The question is, how is God using these first 11 chapters, and what does he tell us through them? So I don't take them literally. There are people who do, and that's fine, but I just want to be upfront that this is a way for us to understand ourselves and the world that we live in and the God whom we serve. So in the beginning, the earth was formless and empty. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep. Now, God is a God who speaks, and this is all throughout the Scripture, and God's words are incredibly powerful, so much so that he can create actual physical things out of nothingness simply by speaking them. And so God speaks into the chaos of the void, and things come to be. Day and night, sky and land, trees and grasses, sun and moon and stars, and so on. And you and me. And creation was good, and you and me, humanity, men and women, were very good because we were a bit different. We were made in God's image. Man was created first, it tells us. However, it wasn't very long before uh, both God and man realized it wasn't good for Ish, the Hebrew name for Adam, to be alone. You can think of the creation of woman's as the necessity of two planks holding together. So if you only have one plank, it's going to fall over. Two planks have a tension, and they support one another, and this is what uh, this is the idea of the creation behind Ish and Isha, man and woman, Adam and Eve. They are to be dependent and supportive of one another. Man was never greater than woman, friends. Can I get an amen from all the women in the... Yeah, there we go. All right. They would be his representatives, his hands, his voice, his extension to creation, to care for creation. Now, in the middle of the garden, there were two trees, the tree of life on one side of the river and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil on the other. Ish and Isha were given the liberty and freedom in the garden to do almost, there, there's no prohibitions except for one thing. They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and yet they did. One no, a no to taking into their hands what was God's? The responsibility for good and evil. And it was a no because it was something that they could not handle. They could not handle the consequences of determining what was right and what was wrong. They needed a creator to do that for them. 
Interestingly, they didn't choose to eat from the other tree. There was no prohibition not to eat from the tree of life, which would, as Genesis 3 tells us, lead to eternal life. They didn't choose to eat from that tree. They chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So their possibility was there. But they choose the, the, the wrong tree. They take upon themselves the knowledge of good and evil. And God's response to this is they cannot eat now from the tree of life in this state of being. We don't want them to live forever in this state of fallenness and sin and rebellion. And so God banishes them from the garden. But God follows them out of the garden. So God says you can't live here. We don't want this to be the way things will be forever. And so God banishes from the garden, them from the garden, but God follows them. Fast forward, because that was only the first three chapters, and I only have another 20 minutes. Um, Genesis 4 through 11, let me summarize it this way, is the narrative of the rise of evil throughout the world. And it starts very small, and it goes very big. And it starts with Cain and Abel, an interpersonal relationship of brotherly murder. And it extends to Genesis chapter 11, to the Tower of Babel. Now, the Tower of Babel is a a symbolic understanding of what it looks like and what we will see all throughout Scripture when nations oppress their, their own people or other people. The oneness of the language in Genesis 11 was not an ideal and not a good thing. It was actually oppression and forced uh, a force by, by the ruling powers for everybody to speak that language and to build a tower to the heavens in order to make a name for themselves. And so you start with a murder of an individual and a brother in a family, and you extend to Genesis chapter 11 where there is enslavement of what we understand as we read it, kind of the entire human race. Now things get small again in Genesis chapter 12. They, they change. They become very specific again. And so in the midst of a world uh, where evil culminates in Babel or in Babylon, there's a man who was open to God. And so God begins something with Abraham. Uh, this, this man that we know is, is opened to and, and almost in some ways representative of God's work in the world. And so he starts with Abram, and through him, just like the intention was for Ish and Isha in the garden, Abram and his family would be a blessing to the world. Those who respond to the blessing, joining uh, the, God, uh, the people that God's forming, uh, will be blessed. And those who oppose living with God in relationship with God will live under the curse. That's what happens when we uh, live according to and antithetical to the way that God desires us to live. We live under curse. The problem is Abram is supposed to become this massive people, uh, uh, as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand in the seashore, but he's barren. His wife is barren. Sarai is barren. And here again, we hear this thing that happens again and again throughout the scripture that God brings something out of nothing. And by the end of the first book of the Bible in Genesis, Abram's family has settled in Egypt and has grown to fill the land. Now, Egypt in the spirit of Babel in Genesis 11 
and in the spirit of every other empire in the scripture, and I would suggest every other empire throughout human history, enslaves God's people, oppressing them and forcing them to produce bricks. It's a means of life by, by production, life by oppression, life by ruling over. And so God's people who are to be a conduit of blessing to the world spend 400 years of slavery until God calls Moses, a murderer on the run in the desert, to go and to set his people free. God's work freeing the people from Egypt would become the cross story, the salvation story of the Old Testament, and would shape how Jews in Jesus' day would understand or conceptualize what the Messiah would do. Once freed from oppression, the people are led into a desert. There they wandered for 40 years, and we wonder why. And here's why. Because they needed to get the Egypt out of them. They might have gotten out of Egypt, but being in a place under oppression and under slavery and understanding this is how things work for 400 years does something to the mind of a people and a culture and generations. And so they needed to get the Egypt out of them. This would be and was intended to be a people and a nation who would demonstrate to the world what it would look like to live with God. And so after so many years of being oppressed and seeing oppression it, as the way that nations ruled, uh, they needed to experience this time in this desert where everything was pure gift. Not through forced labor, not for ruling over like Egypt had done, but as pure gift. And so water, friends, water came from rocks. Bread was manifested every morning, new every morning in the form of dew. There was meat given by quails that they vomited on because they wanted too much on it. That's another story. Their Nikes never wore out for 40 years. Can you imagine this, right? 40 years, their shoes don't wear out as they go along. They're given 10 simple commandments. We touched on them last week. Not 100, not 1,000, simply 10. And those 10 commandments were to shape how they lived with each other. They were to be instructions on how to live with one another. And all this would prepare them to enter a promised land. Now, this bit of the story that comes next is a bit rough because it's, it's the conquest piece um, and there's no silver bullet answer to reconcile it. This is, a, this, this is kind of a conversation maybe for a coffee shop and not a sermon, or at least one sermon. Um, but this section is violent. It's extremely violent. And it seems like, on a surface reading, that God com commands this violence. I'm not totally convinced uh, that he does, but I simply don't know. I think there's enough room to question it. Um, but either way, new, new leadership takes Israel into Canaan and the Promised Land. And Joshua dies, the leader that followed Moses, and judges take over. And you have some good, and you have some bad, but by the end of the book, because the story progresses, and one of the things that they want you to know at the end of this book, is that um, the people, again, have become corrupt. And like Ish and Isha, the story repeats itself and they did what was right in their own eyes. Judges go and kings come. 
Israel asks for a king because they want to be like the other nations, and this is the plight of God's people all throughout history, right? Their uniqueness and their specialness isn't enough. They want to become, they want to use that godness and become like other nations. They want to do the same things that other nations do, but just put a little God on top of it, right? And we see this in our own nation, don't we? This seems to be what Israel continues to do that trips them up. They have this desire to be like the other nations. God rescued them from Egypt, but it really actually never seems like they ever left. And so the historical book recount the kings, the formation of the line of kings, beginning with Saul, transitioning to, to David, through whose line the Messiah was supposed to come. And even though David is described as a man after God's own heart, this dude was violent and bloody, so much so that when he wanted to build a temple for God, God says, you know, no, no thank you. There's way too much blood on your hands. And alongside these historical books, we have the prophetic books. So if you you might be new to how the Bible works, you have these historical books, but then the prophets are actually people who are inserted into those histories. They're speaking during the times of certain kings. And so their voices go into and are inserted into the story as well. They're the ones who spoke to Israel and Judah, who were the divided people of God. They warned them of oppressing their own people, trusting in the gods of the times, the Baals and the Ashtoreths, right? The ways of becoming wealthy and powerful. They urged them to trust in God and not in allegiances to other nations. Some of the prophets even spoke to other nations like Syria and Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and warned them. So it wasn't that God was just concerned for his own people. God was concerned for all people and all nations and what God and what those nations were doing. As history went on, both northern and southern kingdoms were invaded one by one, one by Assyria, the other by Babylon. Judah was the last to go in 586 B.C., falling to Babylon, and and the temple that was central to the identity of the Jewish people was destroyed. The king and the aristocracy, they were carried off. The poor were left to try to find their way in the land. Some prophets went into exile, into the ruling nations with their people. Others stayed back. Uh, Two weeks ago, I learned something new about this time of exile. Uh, we, talked, uh, we talk every once in a while about these commandments that were given by the Pharisees that kind of piled up. There were 613 of them. I learned a few weeks ago that that actually came during this period of exile because they didn't have the central place of the temple anymore. And so how were they to worship without this place of the temple? They created commandments. Lots of them. Lots and lots and lots of commandments. But eventually the empire of Babylon which overtakes Judah, falls to Persia, and the king of Persia, King Cyrus, issues a mandate to permit the Israelites to return to their land. And so the historical books of Ezra and Nehemiah recount the return to the land and the rebuilding of the temple, but the temple is nothing like the one it once was. There's no glory to it. It's a pretty pitiful little shack comparatively. And they carried the commandments back with them. And so you not only have temple worship then, but you have all of these commandments on top of it. The prophets end, and um, it's kind of common agreed upon um, 
knowledge that there's this intertestamental period of 400 or so years. We don't have any scripture, and there's this long quiet. And the quiet of the 400 years, I'm sure, um, echoes back because numbers are really important in scripture, echoes back to this uh, time in Egypt that the Israelites experienced. Then Jesus enters the scene under King Herod, who constructed another temple, Second Temple Judaism. But this thing was like, this was like the Vegas of, of, of temples, right? So if the, the last thing was a shack, this thing was meant to stun everyone and its visual effects. I think I read somewhere at one point in time where if you were descending upon and looking down at, at the temple, um, from outside of Jerusalem at a certain time of day. It was designed so that the light reflected off of it would blind you. Um, this was not about honoring God whatsoever. This was all about Herod and, and the kind of thing that he would want to build for himself. Rome at this time was the new Babylon, occupying Israel and other nations. And before Jesus comes on the scene, there's actually several violent attempts uh, for uh, revolt against Rome. There's a certain sect of Judaism called the Zealots, and you might be familiar with them, but they tried to overthrow Rome by violence. One of Jesus' disciples, Simon the Zealot, was actually a part of this group, but they all, they all failed. So Jesus came on the scene then, and he started to proclaim this kingdom of God, speaking differently than anybody who had before. He knew the stories, but he knew the story. This is why the scriptures tell us and the, uh, the gospels tell us that when he spoke, he spoke as one who had authority. He didn't just know the story. He couldn't just recount the story. He knew the story. He knew where things were going. He knew where things got off. He knew where things were going. The conclusion to Jesus' story was a new heavens and a new earth coming down from the heavens as a new Jerusalem. Part of Jesus' speaking and talking and presence is a warning to the people of the time. Warning them, if you continue to go down this, this way, you will be destroyed. And this is why as the Gospels creep on, Jesus' language gets sharper and sharper because he's trying to talk them out of another violent attempt He's trying to say, look, God's people, you were not meant to do this. This is not the direction. This is not the way of the kingdom. This is not the way to be God's people. And they didn't listen. Fast forward to the year of 70 AD and Jerusalem falls. Finally, the temple is completely destroyed. But Jesus brings this message and upends everything and is crucified. The Prince of Peace meets an incredibly violent and bloody end. And here, friends, is the mystery and the weight of glory. Somehow, the death of Christ overcomes death itself. Not a sword. Not a new revolution, but the death of Christ. Christ becoming lower still, 
descending into the depths of hell itself, takes all of that on his back and bursts through the grave. Death does not win. Death is not the way. Rather, Jesus takes death upon his shoulders and does away with it. Already, but not yet. The weight of glory is this. We must wrestle with as the people of God how someday love will overcome. There are atrocious theological positions out there that state that there must be violence in order for the kingdom to come. And they draw believers of Jesus, followers of Jesus, the false teachings that we confessed about when we finally got the confession right this morning. False teachers say, this has to come about. They're justifying violence in order to bring about peace. Give me a break. This is not the way of Jesus. This is not the way of the people of God. This is not the way of the church. The way of the church, the way of the people of God, culminate in a cruciform life because we're not afraid of death anymore. We might die. In fact, we will all die. But we do not live any longer by the fear of death. And so we don't fight in order to maintain and preserve our life. Rather, we give ourselves, as Jesus does, to our neighbor, to others, to the oppressed, and we lay ourselves down for their sake. We do not look to preserve our life, but we lose our life in order to find it. And so as we look at this freaking crazy world, that is maddening, because I'm afraid to say the word Israel up here because of all the crap that's associated with it. I can't say be merciful to Israel or be merciful to Palestine because some people are going to know, oh, what's he saying? And I got to feel free, like I got to nuance everything. It's hogwash. I have stronger language, but I'm behind a pulpit in a church right now. The people of God must go where the suffering is. I don't care who the suffering are. And we go there not to make them suffer more, but we go there to bear their suffering with them. And you might not think that you can do anything right now in the good old U.S. of A. because we're a sea away, but here's one thing you can do. Do not engage this crap that others somebody else that calls for violence in the name of God. Don't do it. Don't allow it to be done. It is not the way of Jesus. It might be the way of some God, but it's not our God.
There is a way that we can be in this world. There's a way that we should be in this world. It's a way marked by tears. It's a way marked by compassion, by love, by forgiveness, by mercy. I think too, as we look at the story, this is what I would encourage us with friends. Know your story. Don't let somebody give you a story and ask you to live a story or ask you to believe a story that doesn't look like Jesus. Don't let other people ask you to embody something you can't see Jesus embodying. the last 10 minutes weren't even on here so but what I do uh, gratefully have is this table table of table of nations Israeli Palestinian Russian Ukrainian African American white everything everyone this table draws to itself because Christ is the one who makes this table, sets this table, and is Lord of this table. And Christ is the one who has created everyone in his image. And therefore it is impossible for us ever to wish ill upon another because somewhere, somewhere deep inside of them is Christ. And so in the midst of the violence of this world, we come repeatedly to a table that reminds us of who we are, whose we are, and the mission that we have. I wanna give us just two minutes um, to breathe, and to receive the spirit of the crucified Christ and risen Christ. And then I'll invite us to participate and receive this table together. Let's just have a moment of quiet where it's not my voice, but we can listen for the voice of God.
And together as God's people, let us pray this already not yet prayer that Jesus has taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be 